The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. I'm your host of the Ghost Light Podcast, and I'm joined today over the phone by Christine McIntyre, opera director. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you as well. You will be directing Don Giovanni. Let's talk a little bit about him and that show. I feel like Don Giovanni might be one of the worst guys in all of opera in just terms of, <laughs> in terms of a villain. He's at least top five, I like to say. So tell me, is it a challenge for you to present someone like him, somebody so unlikable in a way that's sympathetic enough to keep the audience engaged until the end of the story? great issues of Giovanni, and it's one of the things that directors have had to deal with since Mozart and De Ponte wrote the piece. They actually called it a drama giocoso, mm-hmm. which means um, a dark comedy, and it's really hard for modern audiences to understand what that term means or how we can apply it to a character like uh, Giovanni. Uh, for me, that was great motivation to try to rethink the piece. Um, we're living in a great age of anti-heroes. We've got them in the movies, and we've got them on these great TV series. You can think of really elegant uh, sort of anti-heroes, like Don Draper from Mad Men. You can think of much more violent ones, like Walter White from Breaking Bad. But it seems like we have this uh, fascination with these darker characters. So it's really about finding a way to translate Giovanni into one of those. And it was actually my motivation to move the opera, uh, to reset it in a more American idiom. Let's talk a little bit about the comparison you just made, though. I do think it's interesting that of the two sort of modern exemplars of this archetype, you mentioned one of them being Don Draper. I don't know that anyone would call Don Draper a friend of women. He's There's a lot of misogyny in the stories that right. he's involved yes. with. And I think that connects to the Don pretty directly. How do you handle that part of his character for today's audiences? Well, I mean, I think one of the things is that we have to recast the women uh, and their psychology a bit. We have to make them more understandable to modern women. Uh-huh. And one of the motivations for moving Giovanni to the noir period was that in the noir idiom, you have characters like the femme fatale, right. a woman who sort of gives as good as she gets. So if you take Elvira, Don Elvira, who is in love with Giovanni, and who is often played as some kind of a screaming harpy character, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you give her more power, if you make her a real foil for Giovanni, the piece becomes much more interesting. It becomes much more fun yeah. because of the women playing those characters. But it actually becomes very interesting to see him have to actually negotiate uh, with them in that way. That's really interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the noir thing because you have chosen to set this piece based on the, the long tradition of film noir. I think that's a fascinating choice on your part. And I'm curious what your references were. Are there any specific examples of the genre that are informing your interpretation? Something that we could do, use as homework maybe? Oh, absolutely. There's a list of about five or six films that were particularly influential. I probably watched about 20 to 30 noir specifically when we were creating this concept. But it's always been a genre that I've loved and been attracted to. So here are my top five. Okay. Out of the Past, uh, 1947, Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer. It's probably the most, uh, it's the film noir for me that ticks all the boxes. Mm -hmm. It's got one of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's beautifully shot. Um, Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck as one of the best films at all ever. Yeah. You know, I, I love the scheming in that. And you get the kind of, you know, you get the young daughter. So you, the, the noir, there's often kind of a young female victim, but there's also the femme. Right. And it's 
And all of the characters are slightly unlikable, which is another kind of hallmark of noir. Sure. Um, for the darker side, things like DOA, the original 1950 film, right. um, which is a great film all done in flashback with a man who knows that he's been poisoned and he stumbles into a police station and the entire film is him telling how he arrived at this point. Kiss Me Deadly, which actually had an ending so dark they made them reshoot it. Huh. Um, and then two Orson Welles films, mm -hmm. um, A Touch of Evil, um, yes, definitely. which is beautiful and, yes. and, and dark and very visceral. And The Third Man, which is not American film noir, it's technically a British film shot right. by Carol Mead. But there's something about the European setting that actually really helped us in thinking about uh, Giovanni as well. So. That's a fabulous list, and I invite anybody hearing this podcast to go grab a few of those. Go on Netflix, go to the library, figure out a way to see those, and just fill these, fill your head with these images. I think it'll be really good uh, sort of advance footwork to do to prepare yourself for this, Giovanni. Absolutely. They're all actually really good fun, and the one thing they yeah. all have in common is that they were all made cheaply, but really interestingly. They all look stunning. Now, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about how things are going to look on our uh -huh. stage. I'm curious, you probably don't want to give away too much, but what kinds of production elements do you plan to employ to pull off the aesthetic? Well, one of the great things about noir is that it's a visual world that we kind of instantaneously recognize. Sure. So if I get it right, the curtain will go up and people will go, aha, uh -huh. I know exactly what this is. Yep. One of the biggest things in noir is the idea of the city. The city almost is a character in and of itself. Sure. You get this sense of like dark corners and street lights and all of that. So we have a great set that really tries to embody the essence of a noir city. Um, the second thing is really strong lighting. Right. Uh, noir is all about shadow. Oh, yeah. The films were originally made with single-source lighting, so we try to replicate some of that on the stage, and there are actual lighting cues that will look like certain shots from some of those films I just mentioned, where I've actually said to my lighting designer, it needs to look and feel like this moment. Oh, that's fabulous. Show. I mean, I picture slatted light, cigarette smoke going up through those beams. I mean, it's, I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure a lot of The curtain goes up, and Leporello is standing under a streetlight smoking a cigarette. Of course he is. That's fabulous. We know yeah. where you are. And the third thing is, a lot of um, people say in the theater that they're doing something noir, but then they put a bunch of color in it. Right. Noir technically can have color, but we think of it really as a black and white genre, right? Absolutely. Um, so the entire production is actually black and white. Fabulous. How are you pulling that off? Is that a trick of lighting, costuming, a little bit of everything? Uh, that's a trick of costuming. That's yeah. a trick of lighting. And it's a trick of just we limited ourselves very specifically. There is some color in the show, mm -hmm. but it's very, very specific. It's used to make a real point. The entire palette is very controlled. And it really does look like a film. This uncommon approach to time and place, it's been popular in opera probably longer than I even realized, but I've noticed it a lot over the past decade and a half or so. This idea of setting pieces in times and places that they aren't commonly known for. It's more modern and certainly a different aesthetic than what it was intended to be originally. So why do you think that's become a thing lately? What's the point of it? It's got to be more than just kind of new paint on an old facade, right? There must be more to it than that. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think one of the things in opera is that we have this rep, a lot of which is 200, 300, even 400 years old. Right. And we keep doing these older pieces. And it's one thing when you keep doing older pieces symphonically, but, you know, opera is a visual art form, and we have to keep reinventing visually and theatrically in order to keep the pieces fresh. You know, we've all done Giovanni in the Puss in Boots period with big capes and feather hats and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, and there are only so many of those that you can do, either as a director or as singers um, before that gets a bit stale. 
So it's important to keep the rep as fresh as we can, not only by doing new American opera, but by taking these older pieces and treating them the same way that we would Shakespeare or, you know, the classic Greek plays. It's something that in the theater has been happening for decades upon decades in opera more recently, first in Europe, then in Britain, and then finally here in the United States. Um, it gives me a chance also to reinvent things in an American idiom, and I'm really interested in taking these older pieces and making them really accessible and really immediate for an American audience. Absolutely. Because that's what would have felt for Mozart and DePonte's audience. The curtain would have gone up, and they would have known who yeah. these characters were. They wouldn't have had to think about it. Sure. You mentioned something very interesting, which I'm glad you mentioned. It's this notion that refreshing these old ideas can actually be an inspiration for the singers. I mean, we think about the audience, we think about the directors and the creative team and how inspiring it is for them, but talk a little bit about it, what it, what you feel like it means for the singers to be able to approach these old things in new ways. Yeah, I mean, one of the dirty little secrets of updating is that it's actually way more fun for us to rehearse it that way, and right. I think half the reason we do it is just so we can have fun with it in the room. The first time I did this concept, I had a Giovanni who had done the role maybe six or seven times. And he was really into this new idea. He said, oh, this is going to be great. And two days into it, he suddenly looks at me and he goes, I have to stop doing all that old, boring Giovanni stuff, don't I? <laughs> and right. I said, yeah, it's time to really rethink. And you could just see the penny drop, that he could let go of all that old gesture and his old assumptions about scenes. Right. And we could just totally do them in the moment. Yes. And suddenly these recitatives, the, the sort of strong dialogue parts of opera, that occasionally in Giovanni can be a real slog because many of them are really long. And very um, mannered. You never know exactly yeah. what's happening. Right. Suddenly, you put a scotch glass in somebody's hand and a gun in somebody else's hand, and we know what the scene is about. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's a wonderful chance for singers to really just be really present and theatrical in the room and see where the material takes them. Speaking of Giovanni, let's talk about the end a little bit. Mm -hmm. with, and I don't—I know you don't want to give away all the secrets, like I said before, but I've been told that you've chosen to kind of work around the supernatural elements. There's, I, I, I take it there might not be a talking statue in this one, and that's a common way that the story ends. So w what are the reasons you have for leaving that supernatural stuff aside, and how will you do it? What can you tell us that won't kind of spoil it for us? I won't give it all away, but I will just say that, if anything, we've actually upped the supernatural element. Aha, uh -huh. okay. In noir, there is often something lurking in the shadows. Right. Right. There, and in noir, there is often something supernatural or, or beyond human understanding that is going on as well. Yeah. Um, so look for the commendatory to make more appearances than in perhaps a traditional production of Giovanni. But I also want to just feed the idea that hell doesn't have to be a physical place. Hell can be a state of mind. Mm -hmm. And in a modern psychological idea is that each of us has a kind of hell in our heads. Right? So maybe the more interesting way to approach this psychologically is to have the supernatural influence on Giovanni be about driving him crazy. I've done a lot of reading about Giovanni in... You know, he's based on this character, basically Don Juan. It's the same. It's the same guy. Just Giovanni is basically Juan in Italian. And Camus wrote this great piece about him, where he talked about Giovanni being sort of an innocent, really, not so much a villain, but an innocent that almost blameless in that he's not even aware that what he's doing is wrong. Just as a creature of pure impulse, it's almost possible to find not just sympathy but empathy with him. And I wonder if this noir way of telling the story gives you a little bit more, I don't know, psychological freedom to delve into the deeper, more interesting parts of the Giovanni character? I think so. 
so. I mean, yeah. one of the things about noir is that the anti-hero is rarely truly immoral, right. but he's often amoral. Right, right, right. He right. just stands outside of society. Noir was something that came about in the late 1940s, post-war 1950s, when there was a lot of mistrust of authority. Traditional gender roles were all up in the air because so many women had entered the workforce during the war, and men came back, didn't know where they stood. So there's this tremendous feeling of kind of upheaval and suspicion. And in a world like that, people that stand outside the rules tend to thrive. Yeah, for sure. Bonnie is one of those guys that gets away with everything he can. It's exactly the way Camus described the Don Juan archetype as someone outside of the way we perceive the world. Really very interesting. I can't wait to see it all come together. I'd be remiss, Christine, if I let you go without talking a little bit of teaser for next season. (laughs) And I want to just chat a little bit about Moby Dick with you. You and I are going to talk again about that, I hope, as we get closer. But I wanted to just ask you, what's most exciting about that particular project for the 40th anniversary of Utah Opera? This is a great American opera. I mean, it's it's based on probably the most archetypal of American uh, novels. And I would say J.K. He is the premier living American opera composer. He's also an old friend. Oh, great. I was at the world premiere of his first opera, Dead Man Walking, and I've directed it several times. Mm-hmm. And I re- recently was doing Dead Man Again, and I saw Jake, and I saw Gene Shear, the librettist. And what, for me, is the most powerful thing in bringing this piece to life is the chance to do this work for these two living artists. Right. They were so excited at having a new production of it and the, the way we're going to be doing it in Utah and beyond. And just being able to sit over dinner and talk to the two people that created it and knowing how involved they want to be in the process, that's tremendous because we just don't get that in opera enough. So this will be something that will feel very alive and very important. The opportunity to commune with living artists, the people who created this stuff, it must be very, very enriching for you as a director. Because like you said, that probably happens about 1% of the time for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate. I kind of made a career working on New American Opera, so Uh I know a lot of composers. And every time I have one around, I'm just so thankful. And I actually walk up to them and say, what can I do in this piece that nobody has done yet? Yeah. You know, if it's the second or third production of it. Because I'm really curious to know. What are the missed opportunities or what else would they like to see or what extra bit of storytelling? Um, and sometimes they have fascinating answers. And it's just it's not something I've ever been able to ask Puccini, you know? So. Right, right. Well, I, I hope as we get a little closer to Moby Dick, you'll have a little more time to come on the Ghostlight podcast. So we can Absolutely, really, I would enjoy that. We can really dig into that one. Before I let you go, though, I have to ask you one more question. It's a stock question for everybody who appears on this show. And it's uh-huh. because of our name. I'm curious, Christine McIntyre, if you have ever seen a ghost. Details, please. I have. Um, A couple of years ago, we had to put down our older cat, who was called Elliot. Okay. And we got a new cat within 30 days of the old cat being deceased. Now, I've heard this idea that um, a soul walks the earth for 40 days after Mm -hmm. death. Yeah. So I don't know if it's that we pissed off our old cat, but (laughs) I swear to you that that old cat is still here in this house. There are days when I'm sitting at my desk, I see something out of the corner of my eye, I think, oh, it's the cat. I turn and look, there's nothing there. Oh, boy. And the new cat is asleep downstairs. Yeah. So I know that our old cat is here, and I I, I think she's still a little upset with me. Has the new cat reacted to the old cat yet? No, but I think they would be friends if they ever were in the same space at the same time. Because we all know from the movie Ghost that live cats can see ghosts, so I expect your new cat to... Maybe she has it. She hasn't told me. I'm not quite sure. Well, that is a great story. You have to just make sure that Elliot knows that the world misses him. (laughs) That's that's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. 
this. And thank you once again for coming on the Ghost Light Podcast. We are all very excited about Don Giovanni and looking forward to talking to you again about Moby Dick when the time is right. Thank you, Christine. It's been great, Bob. Thanks so much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 